0: A reading from the book of Genesis. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman,
1: A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 5, starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one who is to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of, of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The word of the Lord.
2: Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to them, All these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and minister to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all this morning. First Sunday in Lent. Notice a few things that change around here during the season of Lent. So this is the journey to the cross. Our... Um, Some of our elements may be a little bit more simple during this season. Some of our liturgy may be a bit more simple and stripped down. The color of this season is purple. Uh, You'll notice that. So that's this season of Lent. Some of our liturgy is a little bit different. um, And we're really walking towards the cross. So this is 40 days, if you don't include Sundays, which are feast days. 40 days that are journey to Holy Week um, and to Good Friday. Um, And then we know Easter Sunday. So it's actually 40 days till Easter all the way through. But today is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're given two temptation stories. Both of these stories are about dependence and about trust, one misplaced and one rightly placed. Genesis 2 tells us that God created human beings out of the dust. So we know this creation story. God created human beings out of the dust and then breathed his life into the dust. So we are the dust and the breath of God. Sometimes we are lulled into believing we're independent, that we are all we need, that I am all that I need. This week, we need to hear that without God, no, we're only dust. Now, sometimes we're fully aware of our dustiness, but we never think we're more than that, just passing time, sitting there, stirred up once in a while, but nothing spectacular. And in those moments, it's important to remember grace, That God's breath is grace. That yes, we are dust. And on our own, we're nothing but dust. But God has breathed his life into us. Some of you, as we have stepped into the season of Lent, you may choose to fast something. And that's appropriate. It's also never required. There's an old phrase, some can, or excuse me. All can, some should, but none must when it comes to fasting during Lent. You may choose to give up something, but it's never required. And I, I want to encourage you as a pastor of a couple things during this season when we talk about fasting. First of all, fasting and dieting are different things. Okay, So if you're looking to make a life lifestyle change in how you eat or change some bad habits or something like that, don't use Lent for that. You can do that concurrently if you want, but, but don't use Lent for that. And then second, this is just really important from a pastoral perspective. In our world, we've been given some incredibly toxic narratives about food. And it just, we can't help but have internalized some of those narratives in our lives. So if you've struggled with body image issues in your life, which I think really is probably most of us in our culture today, um, I'd encourage you not to skip meals. So don't Don't do that if that's become a wrestle in your life. If you want to give up one particular thing, chocolate or coffee or whatever, for which you might be dependent and acknowledge your dependence on God, then that's great. But be careful and be aware. And I want to remind us, food is a gift. (laughs) It's a blessing from God, a gift from God. So the purpose of fasting in this season is to take away some of the comforts that lull us into thinking we're independent, When we have all of our creature comforts, we can operate under the assumption that we've got this life pretty well figured out. Taking some of that security away has a way of messing with us. We experience a bit of the fight or flight response in our brain. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that normal thing that I typically do is taken away. What am I going to do? We freak out a little bit. Where do I turn when I ache? And in those moments, it's that reminder that we're dependent not on those things, but we're dependent on God. But listen to this, fasting is not the only thing we do for that purpose. Regular prayer reminds us of our dependence on God. The old word almsgiving is a way of saying giving to the poor. When we're connected to those in need, we're connected to God because God is with those in need, and we need him. We need God. We're dependent on him. So these things help put us in those postures. Again, we need to remember all can, some should, none must, right? So we are dependent on God, and that's what these practices do in us is remind us of that reality. Sin is what happens when we forget our dependence and we go our own way. So many of you know as parents how difficult it is when your children want to be more independent than they're ready to be. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before. You say to your four-year-old, no, you can't make macaroni and cheese by yourself. I know you think you can. I know you want to, but you can't. Or no, you can't paint your bedroom. I know you want it to be pink. Of course, I'm speaking hypothetical, but I know you don't want it to be pink, or you want it to be pink, but you can't paint it. we got to make a plan for that. Or, yes, I know you want to be the one that puts gas in the car, but that's just asking for trouble. You can't do that. Let dad do that. Now, this is an imperfect metaphor, of course, because our kids will grow into independence. We want that, right? But we are always dependent on God. We don't ever grow out of that. But God does invite us to grow into certain things over time. In our Genesis reading, we hear Adam and Eve, the first human beings, have been put in the Garden of Eden to keep it, to steward it. So they're called to live in God's world with the other creatures on God's terms. So they're dependent on God for their vocation, for their calling, for their sustenance, for everything. They've been called to something. They have a calling. They're to tend a garden. And in addition to the calling, they're given a couple other things. They're given a permission. You can eat from any tree in the garden. There is broad permission for these human beings. They're also given a prohibition. They are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, God says, if you eat that, you will die. The trees that they're given are a gift of grace. God has created the world and has created people and has given them sustenance. Yet not all the trees are a gift for them at that point. We're not told why. Like, my big question when I read this is, why put the tree there in the first place, right? Like, why is it even there if they're not supposed to eat of it? But somehow God knows they are not yet ready to have full knowledge of good and evil. Now, God's desire is that human beings will one day fully know good from evil, but only as they follow him. It's only as they acknowledge their dependence on God. So God's job is to know everything, And human beings' calling is to just follow him. All humans have these three things, calling, permission, and prohibition. We have calling, we have permission, and we have prohibition. And we learn as human beings to live with these three things together. Now, then the serpent enters the garden and begins to poke at God's command. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? God's command is now questioned. Notice that God is spoken of in the third person for the first time. God is objectified. When God before said, if you eat this, you will surely die, he didn't say that to them as a threat. It was an acknowledgement of a boundary, that this is the path that leads to death. If you go down this path and you don't acknowledge your dependence on me, that's going to lead to death. But what the serpent does is the serpent twists. It's always weird when you talk about the serpent, whether to say he or it. And there's theological reasons behind that. But if I jump back and forth, that's why. So, but the serpent kind of twists the boundary into a threat. So this was a boundary. God described it as a boundary. But the serpent says, basically, okay, so he said you're going to die. He's threatening you. Sin has disastrous consequences. But not because God has these arbitrary rules that human beings must obey or we incur his wrath. Rather, the consequences of sin are the result of living in ways which are incongruous with creation or with who God is. The acknowledgement of the boundaries is seen by the author of Genesis as a good thing. So boundaries are good. And notice that it's not knowledge itself that's wrong. It's not that human beings are supposed to be know-nothings. But the man and the woman are called to respect the boundaries which have been given to them. Now, for us, this seems really strange. Human beings in our lifetimes and really since the beginning have always been trying to cross the boundaries of what we previously thought was unachievable. So there's such strength and such, uh, we put such high value in those who can cross boundaries. So splitting the atom, breaking the sound barrier, flying, Going to the moon, these are just a few things. Like, we cross the boundaries. We didn't think we could do this before, but we're the ones who can cross it. But our ancient author has great reverence for boundaries. Boundaries are important. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have (laughs) learned how to fly or gone to the moon or anything like that. But we do have to ask ourselves, do we cross our previous boundaries uncritically in our world? There's a difference between knowledge, knowing a lot of stuff, and wisdom, which is deeply connected to God. The concern is that our knowledge or learning is uncritical, and we're not pondering what it's doing to us. So for example, we think about the invention of the internet and how it's changed our world. More recently, we've seen the emergence of AI technology. I'm having so many conversations with people where they randomly bring up, I'm kind of concerned about artificial intelligence. <laughs> Okay, yes, I understand. The question is, are we simply grasping for more progress, more ingenuity? Or are we thinking about how those things are forming us? What they're doing to us? How they're shaping us? You may know the story of Solomon from the Old Testament. He prayed to God for the gift of an understanding mind, which was the ability to know good from evil. All right. So he prayed for the knowledge of good and evil. That's not a bad thing. But Solomon acknowledged it's a gift which only comes from God and that God decides whether or not he's going to give it. Now, unfortunately, Solomon eventually, even though he acknowledged it was a gift from God, he eventually allowed the knowledge to lead him to ruin. But it's amazing how so much of the scriptures is not just about telling us what's right and wrong, but telling us to trust God. We trust and we are led with discernment. You'll notice this in your life as you walk with Jesus for long periods of time. Some things are not good or bad, but they have an appropriateness in context. Some things are good and bad, and the context matters. And of course, there are some things that are pretty clear in all situations. But we are called, Christians are called to trust in God. How do we do that? I mean, that seems awfully squishy seems a lot easier if we would just read the Bible and go, okay, well, this is clear and this is clear, and there has to be a a really easy separation in everything that we do. But we're called to trust. We trust in God's character as revealed in Jesus. We ask ourselves regularly, how does this particular situation point to Jesus? And we trust for the Spirit to lead us in this way. So the serpent misunderstands God's words. And the woman corrects the serpent. But his misinterpretation or its misinterpretation has opened the door to questioning God's ways. The snake says, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. This is a twisting of the truth. Eve and Adam are not tempted simply to do a naughty thing, but to live their lives out of God's order. Therefore defying God's authority in their life, and in doing so, they're tempted to be Godlike. Well, Adam and Eve make the decision to take their lives into their own hands, usurping God's authority for them. And in that moment, Adam and Eve are forced to grapple with something they were not ready for. The result of this is they realize they were naked. And they felt shame. Something doesn't seem right. It's not as whole as it was before. They feel the need to cover themselves and hide themselves. Their decision to eat the fruit, then we see, begins to unravel things. Human beings have rejected their dependence on God and therefore the project of human beings as stewards of the world. The scripture shows us that the result of this one act of rebellion has ripple effects. Which warp everything. Sin begins to grow. And this plays out in the story as we see the devastating effects of sin and the pattern continues. And then God chooses a people, Israel, to be part of his plan of putting things right, to be the healers for this disease. And yet, even the healers are not immune to the disease. Even they choose to go away from God's design. Now, it's no coincidence that in our gospel reading, we have another temptation narrative. Where human beings are unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. Where we try to take control and do not trust God, Jesus trusts the Father completely. So Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and of course this is intentional. Jesus is reliving the story of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says, probably obviously, he was hungry, just like you would be. Jesus is in the desert, and he's fasting, and he's fully dependent on the Father. Now, notice that the tempter shows up right at the point of his hunger. In 12-step groups, there's an acronym called HALT, and it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired.
0: The idea is that
2: temptation will reveal itself when a person is hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. So we need to pay attention to that, that place of vulnerability. Because in each of these instances, our basic needs are revealed. When we get to a place of need, other voices become louder to us. Voices that tell us, that call us to forget our dependence on God. To forget our identity and what God says about us. And to forget our mission. So why was Jesus tempted? Well, one of the ways is in order to, one of the reasons is in order to reveal the works of the enemy. Through Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection, he shows us the false messages of the enemy. He shows sin for what it is, and by exposing it, he destroys it. So think about that for a minute. In his teaching, Jesus shows the false narratives by which we are often held captive. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. But all of this actually begins in Mary's womb. And in his birth, we see Herod is revealed as the one who's just interested in his own power, willing to kill innocent babies to keep himself in power. In Jesus' casting out devils or exorcisms, he shows the way that the enemy works to bind us up. In his healing, he basically says, this is not how it should be. And in his death, he shows how evil and brutal the sin of the world is. And this is true also of his temptation. He reveals the work of the devil. I want to look at these quickly one by one. The first temptation is you can meet your needs yourself. The tempter comes to Jesus in a similar way that the tempter came to Eve in the garden. Eve notices that the fruit is good for food. Well, the devil tempts Jesus in his hunger to turn stones into bread. So the way the world has been set up is that God creates the world and food comes from the earth and sustains human beings. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we find that painful toil or labor enters the equation, right? That that's required in order to get food from the earth. But Jesus is the only human being who, if he wanted to, he could shortcut that thing. So he could be like, I don't have to wait for food to grow from the ground. I can just turn these stones into bread. He could quickly do that. So the temptation here is for him not to fully identify with the human condition, but to satisfy his own need for bread independently from God's plan. But Jesus refuses to do so, anticipating the moment when he lays down his life freely. Just as Jesus could have shortcutted here, he also could have shortcutted the cross So how does Christ beat the tempter in ways Eve cannot? Because Christ does not want to shortcut the process. He does not want to be independent from God. And he wants to identify with us fully. He realizes that this gift of bread will be there for him, and he refuses to grasp it impulsively. I think this contrast is evident with our own impatience. How often do we follow messages in our world that tell us to grasp, to get all that we can, to consume, right? Messages that there isn't going to be enough for me if I don't grasp at this thing now. How often are we distracted from the way of Jesus because of the rumblings in our stomach? But Jesus does for us, all of Eve and Adam's children, what we cannot do for ourselves. He leads us into the way of trust in the Father. Jesus quotes the Old Testament by saying, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This means we are not the sum of our cravings and desires. That's not who we are. That's not what defines us. We're more than that. It doesn't mean our desires and cravings are wrong, but they're not what defines us. We are defined by God's love. The second temptation is, you can make God do what you want him to do. So the devil then takes Jesus to a holy city. Look at the contrast here. Jesus is taken from desert to the holy city in Jerusalem. And this is written for us to think about Israel's story. After their 40 years in the wilderness, the people of God enter into the promised land. And once they've entered the land, they've entered this mountain of Jerusalem, not everything is rosy. In fact, the promised land actually becomes the place of their greatest rebellion against God. They've been given this gift. They're an empire now, and they rebel against God. This small group of desert-wandering people go from desert to mountain, and quickly they abandon the path that God had laid out for them. They say they don't want to be ruled by God anymore. They want a king. They want to own slaves. They want to accumulate massive wealth, and they become violent. I think this is often true for us. The site of our greatest victory, greatest gift, can often be our greatest failure. You've heard the phrase, their greatest strength is their greatest weakness. I've noticed this in myself. I've noticed this in the people I know. That whatever it is that we're really good at or gifted at, there's often a shadow side to that. So, maybe you're really strong in that you can quickly change your mind about a situation. You don't waste much time. You can read a situation and go for it. But the weakness to that is maybe you're flighty or inconsistent. Maybe you're strong in your empathy for other people. You can step in their shoes and feel what they feel, but you're weak in that you care too much about what other people think. You're fragile. Maybe you're strong in gifting or skill. You have a gifting that everybody sees and you're really skilled in some way, but then that creates pride. So we look at all these things, even in our strengths, we're weak. But I want to say that's good news because it means we're dependent on God, the one who runs the world. Even our acts of devotion to God are incomplete. I don't know if you've noticed this about you, I've noticed about it myself, but even when I'm faithful in prayer, so often my prayers come out of selfish motives. We hope that God will bless us or that God will meet our needs, which is fine and good, but sometimes there are selfish motives that get mixed in with all of that. Sometimes fasting is done as an attempt to manipulate God instead of a true humbling of ourselves. So what do we do in this situation? If everything we think that we do is good <laughs> is also a weakness, well, again, I think this is good news. It's not that our weakness is good news, but acknowledging our weakness is good news. That weakness is a sign of dependence. This is the very place where we rest in God's grace. Because God takes broken things and makes beautiful things. Macarius of Egypt, who is one of the desert fathers, warns us to think about our devotion to God, is always fragile always just the beginning. So he says this, this is true prayer. To pray and then to say, this is not prayer. (laughs) To fast and say, this is not fasting. What does he mean by that? Well, we can't ever trust in ourselves and our own ability to get everything right. We cling not to our own faithfulness, our own ability to do good works. We cling to the fact that Jesus was faithful and we are his. The devil says, if you're the son of God, so proceeding to tell Jesus to throw himself off the mountain because the father will protect him. Remember that Eve was tempted by the fruit because it was pleasing to the eye. Jesus is tempted to do something pleasing to the eye, something dramatic to prove his intimacy with the father. Another way to say it is he's tempted to use his intimacy with the father to do something that's not part of the father's character. The devil says, well, if that's really who you are, if you really have this kind of intimacy with the father, show it, do it. That's not what you're supposed to do, right? Show your intimacy, show your relationship to him, show the power of God. Again, this points us back to Israel's story. Israel doubted God's presence in the wilderness when they didn't have food and they didn't have water. So for us, when we're faced with moments of lack, of emptiness, it's natural for us to wonder, has God given up on me? In those moments, it can be difficult to trust. But the good news is we don't have to trust ourselves, and we don't have to trust in our own ability to trust. Think about that for a minute. Even the times where, gosh, it's hard to have faith right now. We can trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. Christ was tempted on our behalf and was faithful on our behalf. We can hold on to Christ's own confidence in the Father. And the third temptation, you don't need the cross. Last week, we heard the story of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. He's shining in glory, showing us what it means to be truly human. And as part of the third temptation, Satan takes Jesus up on the mountain now, here, the devil is presenting a counterfeit mountain. It's a counterfeit revelation. In fact, there's only three mountains, really, that Jesus is on in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to see if I remember this accurately. There is the, um, there's the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes... There is the crucifixion, and there's the transfiguration. So I got those out of order. But there's the Beatitudes, the transfiguration, and the crucifixion. Those are three mountains where God reveals, where Christ is revealed for who he is in different particular ways. But then here we have a counterfeit mountain (laughs) that Jesus goes up on the mountain, and what Satan offers Jesus is there's a different way you can live out your destiny as Lord of Lords. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to give yourself. Let me show you a different mountain. Let me show you an alternate reality because it's still going to get you to the same goal and you're supposed to be Lord of Lords and that's noble, isn't it? You should be the rightful Lord of Lords. So let me show you a different way to get there. I think in our lives, it's, it's good to want certain things in our life or at least it's permissible. It's good to want to be healed from disease, for example, It's good to want to be in community and have relationships. It can be good to want to get married or to have kids or have a fulfilling job. For Jesus, it was right for him to be Lord over everything. But the temptation, as it was for Adam and Eve, is to live out our vocation on our own terms. To make it about our work or make a kingdom for ourselves. Even our noble desires to help other people can quickly become about us. And this is why consistent trust is so necessary. Okay, so one of the themes I just feel like we say over and over again here that is so critical is the necessity to trust in God. That doesn't mean we can't promise you here, you know, five steps to prosperity in your life. We can't promise you a quick fix to anything. In fact, we don't promise you anything. But we know that the way of self-giving, the way of love, the way of laying down our lives and trusting in God and not trusting in ourselves is a whole different way to be human. We trust that is it is the better way to be human. This is the challenge for us in Lent because we're constantly going to be tempted to turn to other things instead of resting in our dependence on God. Temptation often comes to us in the place of our longings and hungers. But during Lent, it's like we step intentionally into those spaces of vulnerability. Those places that we often try to just hide or or don't really talk about very much or think about very much. Lent, we go, okay, it's here. My brokenness, my vulnerability. But the good news is we don't go there alone. That there is one who has been faithful and will be faithful. And in his faithfulness, what Jesus does is he fulfills our story and all the stories of those who have gone before Eve is restored and made new in him. Adam is restored, made new in him. All of those who have failed in the past, their stories are fulfilled in Jesus. In faithfulness, Jesus fulfills those stories. This Lent, many of you might feel a certain emptiness. Maybe you're in a season of loneliness right now, anxiety, grief, financial lack. All of those are, I want to affirm that all of those are significant. They take a toll on us. Those are real. Those are painful things. And Christ does not step in and tell us to pull ourselves out of them, but He goes with us to that place. We are challenged towards trust rather than turning to unhealthy coping patterns. Now, that's easier said than done. And that's part of, as Christ is with us, we as the church are called to embody that reality, to carry each other's burdens, to walk with each other in those difficult circumstances. But there's also a counter-danger. Often we can trust in our strengths and our achievements. I do things really well, right? Or I can do things way better. And when we do that, our strength actually becomes weakness. The challenge for Lent may be, to learn to embrace our limits, embrace the boundaries. Now, this probably sounds like torture to some of us. The truth is we can't do it all. Our skills, talent, devotion, or character will never be enough on their own. We offer our brokenness to God and he makes something out of us. Finally, the way of the cross always means laying down our dreams and our desires allowing God to fulfill them in a way that we never would have expected. The Christian life is not self-help. It's a way of saying, I lay down those things and I trust in God. This is his kingdom, not ours. And even our good dreams are better in his hand. May we ruthlessly pursue trust in the one who is faithful, even as we are unfaithful. May we trust in his nature to make beautiful things out of broken things. May we resist shame and offer all that we are to God. Amen.